Well, if you're thankful for the love of God, say amen. amen. That song says it's reckless, and we would say, well, God is not reckless, and what we mean by that is he cared not for the expense. He said, whatever it takes, that's what I'll do, and I'm grateful for a God that loves like that, and I'm grateful you're here today, and I'm especially thankful that I'm here today, and uh, some of you know, Lisa and I have been away on vacation, and we celebrated our church's 20th anniversary, and then uh, Lisa and I were able to uh, have some time together. We enjoyed it. We spent a little time, just her and I, and saw extended family in Colorado, spent some time with my folks in in uh, Arizona. Some of you know my mom's in the hospital there, and, and uh, we just had an absolutely fantastic time. And I want you to know for Lisa and I, really we're taking a break not just from the work. Uh, obviously that's the case, and you know what I mean by taking a break from the work, but we really view it as taking a break for the work, for the purpose of getting re-engaged so we can come back full of energy and ready to go. And uh, since God called me to be a pastor, it's all I've ever wanted to do in all of my life. And since I've been pastoring, all I've wanted to do is be the pastor of Coastline Baptist Church. And so we kind of like the idea of uh, taking that time to recharge so we can come back and, and uh, be here with full energy. And thank you for being the kind of church that is happy that we get to do those things. And, and uh, my good friend Luke, who's probably in here somewhere, told me earlier today, uh, you know, he asked about our, our time away and he said, well, you guys deserve it. And I, I was glad that he said that, but in my heart, I didn't receive it. I don't ever want to get to the point where I think that's what I deserve because then you surrender the opportunity to be thankful if you have an entitlement approach. And so we're grateful to, uh, to be here and uh, for our church family. We love you guys. I, I, I told Jeremy earlier, like 50 people told me what a great job he did. For the first 30, I was really happy about it, you know, and after that, I'm like, <laughs> All right, enough already, but what a great brother, and we're blessed as a church to uh, know that the Word's going to be preached, and, and uh, I'm, I'm so thankful for uh, who he is and what, he, what he's done for us. Uh, I wanted to mention this before I get into my message. Uh, the week before last, we had uh, some guys on our campus here, and they were drilling soil samples for our upcoming parking lots. A test, I, at least I didn't understand we needed it in the very beginning, but we got it done. And I think they have to confirm that that earthen material there is dirt, something like this, okay? So they took samples, and it's off in a lab, and scientists are looking at it, and hopefully in, in a, a couple weeks, they'll say, yep, it's dirt, you know? And they'll say, you got the green light, but those parking spots, Lord willing, will be coming along soon. We got that nursery open that we talked about, and uh, this is my first Sunday to preach in two services, and uh, so far, it's great. It's given me more time to talk with people in between services. Our first service, we had, uh, this room was completely full, and we had more chairs up than we do now. And uh, that's a lot of fun. I hope I preach the same if there's 10 people or 1,000 people, but there's something about a full room that just adds energy, you know? And uh, so I'm very grateful for all of those things and the good that God is doing here. If you'd be so kind as to take your Bibles and join me in turning to the New Testament book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. We're going to be starting a new series today. We're entitling it, The Church Is, and then there's a blank line. And over the next six or seven weeks, we're going to fill in the blanks, if you would. We're going to take the time to discover what is it that the church is. And if you were to look the word church up in a dictionary, you would find the dictionary definition. I've looked it up, and I'll share that definition with you. The dictionary would tell us that the church is a building used for public worship. Now, that's not a wrong definition. I think the way we use the word church, we would understand that if someone were to say, I'll meet you at the church, we're... We're understanding they're pointing us to a building that is reserved for the purpose of, of, of welcoming Christians who come to worship the Lord. And so that would be the dictionary definition. When we speak of the church in this study, we're not dealing with that dictionary definition. 
We're going to be talking more about the organism. It's, it's more than an organization. We're going to be talking about the organism of the local New Testament church that Jesus is using to do His work in the world today. Now we know that technically... The word church has a meaning. It, it refers to that group of called out people who've been born again, who've been baptized, and who meet together for the purpose of carrying out the Lord's great commission. But, but even more than that, we're going to be talking in this series about those descriptive and definitive moments in the New Testament that identify the body of believers that we call the church. You see, just like people, churches can drift from their purpose. And I'll tell you right now what it is we have to do to drift. Nothing. It's our default setting. It's, it's just the result of inertia. I think of the winds of change that blow and the currents of culture that come. And, and there's all the time of pressure to get people and churches alike to, to move. And, and we can many times drift from our purpose. But if we want to remain true to God's purpose, we have to periodically revisit the topics that we'll visit in the course of this study, and we'll understand how they can help us as individuals and as a church family to stay the course and to stay together in the process. Now, a little bit of background before we get to our text in the book of Acts. The New Testament portion of the Word of God begins with four books. In the first four books of the New Testament we refer to as the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and there are just four accounts of the life and times of Jesus Christ. It's in the Gospels. We read the words of Jesus. We hear of the parables of Jesus. We hear of the miracles of Jesus. And, and the first four books of the New Testament, they just completely go into who Jesus is, what He did, and what He said. And, and they're incredibly insightful. When we make our way into the fifth book of the New Testament, we come to a book that we often just call the book of Acts. Maybe in your Bible, the heading would be the Acts of the Apostles. But that fifth book of the New Testament, it comes on the heels of the, of the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We get into the book of Acts, and it tells the story of what happened in the first century church. It tells of that inaugural day, the beginning day. It, it talks about how Christians worked together, how churches were started, how, how the world was changed. And literally, when, when Jesus left his followers behind, it was a relatively small group of people. They were a persecuted minority. And in the span of a few hundred years, they became the empowered majority. And the book of Acts, to a great degree, tells us exactly how this happened. It's an incredible book. It's a dynamic book. It's it's a helpful book and it serves many purposes, but at its core, what we find in the book of Acts is a blueprint for what an authentic New Testament church is. We, we find a church that loves Jesus and serves Jesus. This book of Acts teaches us that we're to work together, but much more than that, it teaches us what we are to accomplish as we work together. So we're going to take an overview of the book of Acts and we're going to see some of the ways in which this first century church changed their world. And I want to also add as, as we prepare to enter into this that I believe this is a very timely series. With our church's 20th anniversary just a few weeks behind us and, and with the times in which we're living so prone to change, these are very tenuous times in which we're living, I think it's imperative that from time to time we as a church family take the opportunity to get in the Word of God and, and, and discover what it is that God has to say about His church. It, it very well may be that God and His grace in the course of this study will realign our entire church family more in focus with the imperatives that we find in His Word. 
Churches that honor the Lord and churches that help others, they don't just happen. It's not something that's just automatic. It's the result of Christians very specifically getting together to, getting, to get in the Word to discern what God would have us to do. And today as we begin to answer that question, the church is, and find words that fill in the blank, I want us to see today that the church of Jesus Christ is compassionate. We're going to study compassion. And compassion is a major theme in the New Testament. The word compassion, which is used throughout the New Testament, it's, it's an interesting word. The word from which we get our English word for compassion actually deals with intestines. <laughs> okay, And uh, you might say, well, that's kind of gross. I know, but a lot of things we say actually are kind of gross. If, if you weren't from our culture and someone said to you, man, my heart really goes out to you, they'd be like, dude, that's gross. I don't want your heart to come out to me. All right, just keep it in there. And, and so when the Bible uses this word that refers to intestines, in fact, uh, I don't know a lot of Greek words, so when I do know one, I better share it, right? So you guys want to know the beautiful word from which word compassion comes. Let me share this word with you in the language of the New Testament. Splanchizomai. Isn't that a beautiful word? No, it's not a beautiful word, and it speaks of intestines, and we can wonder what is the purpose of God teaching us about compassion by using a word like that. It means to be touched by something so deeply within that you're compelled to act. You're moved by something so strongly that an action no longer is an option. I'm glad to tell you today that Jesus Christ, God the Son, is a God of compassion, the Bible in Matthew 14 and verse 14 says that Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. If you're glad Jesus is a compassionate Savior, say amen. You know, in other words, when Jesus saw the needs around him, he was compelled he was passionately compelled to act. It, it was a voluntary action, but really it was an involuntary byproduct of the voluntary action to let love lead the way. Jesus Christ is a God of love, and, and love requires this matter of compassion, caring for others, reaching out to others. And we have a great accounting in the verses we're going to study today of a time in which Peter and John went out of their way to help someone, and their example is something from which we need to learn this morning. And so I'm glad that you're here to get into this study with me. And if you found your way over to Acts chapter 3, I would invite you, if you're able, to join me in standing, please, as we read this passage. If you're glad to be in church, say amen. 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 Acts chapter 3 is where we're going to be. And we'll start reading in verse 1. The Bible says, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Now I'm going to read on, but in verse 2 we meet a certain man, the Bible tells us, who was lame. He was unable to walk. He had to be carried to this place where he would ask alms. And that's just a fancy way of saying where he would beg. So this guy was set near a gate near the temple, on a daily basis, he could not move, and he would ask people for money. That's what he did. Verse 3. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked in alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. He, leaping 
up, stood, and walked, and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. They were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. I love the way the Bible concludes in verse 10. You get the idea that all these people knew who that man was. They knew what his problems were. And they see him now with his life having been touched by Jesus Christ. And they were amazed. There's, there is profound power in a life that reflects and demonstrates what the grace of God can do in us and through us. A changed life is a great testimony. But I want you, if you would, to go back to verse 6. We're going to find a statement in the midst of that verse that I think is a good center around which to build our study. I want you to see here that the, uh, the Apostle Peter said this, Such as I have, give I thee. He said to this man, What I have, that's what I'll give. That's what I can give to you. Our Father, thank you again for this day and the privilege we have to open your holy and preserved word and learn and study and grow. Uh, help this to be a, a time that helps our church to stay true to you, to your word, to stay focused on that which you've given us to do. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. It couldn't get any better for Peter and John. Our reading today started, as you know, in Acts chapter 3, but had we taken the time to go back to Acts chapter 2, we would have learned that Jesus, after living a sinless life, had been crucified on a cross, he was buried, and three days later he rose again from the dead. Short time after that, we know that Jesus ascended back to the right hand of God the Father and God the Spirit came and indwelt the people of faith so that they could do the work that God had given them to do. And Peter and John had just had this great opportunity to be a part of the inaugural day in the history of the church. And Peter stood in a very public place and he very clearly, powerfully, dogmatically preached the truth of salvation. And God the Spirit worked through Peter and God the Spirit worked in the lives of others. And on that very first official day in the history of the church, thousands and thousands of people accepted that there's no other way to a relationship with God save through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and they not only believed in Jesus as their Savior, they did what Christians have done since the beginning. They responded and acted that faith out by very publicly identifying with Jesus in His death, His burial, and His resurrection in what we call baptism. It was an incredible day. I get no sense that Peter or John felt any boost to their ego as a result of the great Sunday that they had, but I can't help but imagine they were incredibly thankful and that it was incredibly gratifying to be used of the Lord in that way. Yet in the very first verse that follows that, the verse we began reading in in chapter 3, we find Peter and John were heading to the temple to pray. They were going to pray. It was, it was about three in the afternoon. They were going to a temple that they knew had already been corrupt in some ways at that time. Yet, true to their custom, they, they showed up to pray. And, and I'll, I want you to know what struck me about that reality is the fact that these men didn't just go to the Lord in prayer when their grandma was sick, when they needed a new job. When the car wasn't running very well, and they knew this would be a horrible time to have a car that would break down. They, they didn't take the time to go to prayer, only when they'd exercised every option and it seemed that things would never get better, let's give prayer a shot. These men prayed in the bad times. They prayed in the mundane times. And here they are, what I believe was one of the highlights in their lives, one of the great moments of their lives. It seemed as though all the needs were met. And yet, what did they do? They went to God in prayer. It was a way of life for them. They were communicating with the Lord. 
they approached the temple, the Bible tells us, and there was a beautiful gate. Historians have written about this gate, and they tell us that it was inlaid with gold, and there were, there were precious stones placed on this gate. And, and I can just imagine, here's this beautiful gate, and they say, we really ought to name this gate. It's just beautiful. What should we name it? And they came up with a really creative name. They called it beautiful. That was the name of the gate, all right? So I want you to get the idea. It was the name of the gate, and the gate was beautiful. It's what it's called over and over in our text. It's an incredible gate a beautiful gate and adjacent to that beautiful gate is something that was not so beautiful in fact in comparison it would have been very ugly right at the base of this beautiful gate was a poor man who was begging for money so that he could sustain his life he was crippled unable to move the bible tells us and he laid there each day to ask people who were on their way to the temple for some change so that he could buy enough food to stay alive for at least another day as I read that, I thought it's interesting where he had been placed. It makes sense. I'll talk more about that later. But it's amazing that people can get so far removed from any sense of godliness. These people were on their way to what we'd call today church, of course, in their culture, temple. And they wouldn't have let that man come in. He was seen as less than, not good enough. He was marred physically. He had problems in his life. And he would not have been allowed to enter into the temple. And here are these people walking past this man to go to the temple to spend time in prayer. And, and many would have looked at him and thought, you're not good enough to go where I'm going. Your life's messed up. You've got problems. You are a loser, my friend. Other people would have walked by. And as they saw this man pleading for money, some, I'm sure, would have thrown him money, some from a good heart. Others would have done so that, so that they could have felt more morally superior it would have been a condescending here you go here's a quarter in your cup there buddy god bless you and it all would have been an act to try and puff themselves up because they felt better than others that had more visible problems than the ones they had on the inside there was condescension to the whole situation and one of the reasons i'm bringing this series is because i see a juxtaposition here between this man and this beautiful gate you see when religion takes over and we forget that it's not all about me, but it's all about that work that God wants to do. What happens is we find ways to make up rules and traditions that keep the very people away from the very place that God would have them to come. When a group that calls themselves a church becomes more concerned about themselves than others, they cease being a church. It may still be on the sign, but they're no longer a church in God's eyes. They're a glorified social club with a few religious relics around to make it feel special in that way. So Peter and John are walking to the gate. They've got giant smiles on their face because things should go, go no better for them at that moment. And then this man cries out to them and asks for some money, and the whole scene just slows down. And Peter and John, they, the Bible says they fasten, they firmly affix their eyes upon this man. So he, they're just staring at him now. He's got all of their attention. And Peter says to this man, he said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. And then in the name of Jesus, they healed this man who'd been crippled since birth. In fact, if we would have read over into Acts chapter 4 and verse 22, we would have learned that this man who's 40 was crippled from birth. He'd never walked. He'd never jumped. He'd never done any of these things. 40 years, he never knew the joy of being able to get around. And in response to the healing of God through the lives of Peter and John, this man's life was totally changed. And, and the Bible says, And he leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. He could never stand before. He could never jump before. He could never, never walk before. He could never go in the temple before. And all of these things were done because of the goodness and grace of God, but because there were two people who had seen how Jesus had lived 
who said, I want to be compassionate like Jesus. I want to minister to others like Jesus. Now, it's a great story. But what's interesting about the book of Acts is it does not necessarily describe for us what we are to do as a church. It demonstrates it. It demonstrates it. This passage we just read isn't a passage that says, church, be compassionate. Compassion is defined as whatever. And, and, and here's what compassion means. And, and, and I'm going to write a, a, a treatise. I'm going to write a, a book on the topic of compassion. No, no, no. That's not what the book of Acts does. It can describe some things. But, but more than that, it demonstrates us. It shows us what it means to live this kind of life. I think of the words Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. He said, for even hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Oh, listen, Jesus did a lot of teaching, no doubt about that. But so much of what we learn from Jesus is what we learn by way of observation. Yes, he, he described some things, but the power of the life of Jesus was found in the demonstration of his life. I think most of you know what I mean. If you have kids, you know that sometimes they don't do what you say, but they oftentimes will do what you do. They glean from that example. And that's what we find from this passage, a powerful story. And now I'll share three very simple principles that can help us as individuals. And more importantly, and more specifically to this study we're going to go through, it can help us as a church family. So if you're with me, say amen. amen. All right. The first principle I'll share is this. Compassion is enhanced by teamwork. Compassion is enhanced by teamwork. Now, if I'm going to make a statement like that, I'd better have a verse to back it up, and I don't have one verse to back that up. I've got four verses we're going to look at here in this passage to back that up. And so I want you to go back with me to verse 1. Verse 1 in our passage says this, Now Peter and John went up together. Now I want you to catch what I'm about to say, and I'll build on it, but we've got to start here. Peter and John went up together. It would have been enough to say Peter and John went up. It would have been enough to say they together went up. But God's making a point. He's building a foundation. He said it was Peter and John. Oh, yeah, and they were together. We've got two people together, walking together. See that in verse 1. I want you to go with me, if you would, to verse 3. The Bible says of this man who was lame, the Bible says, who's seeing Peter and John. There they are together, all right? They're mentioned in that way. Let's go to verse 4. The Bible says there, and Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John. It, it, it could have been left out. It could have just said, and Peter fastened his eyes on him. But it said, and Peter fastening his eyes upon him with John. And here's what he said. Look on us. Togetherness. These people were working together. Let's go to verse 5. In verse 5, the Bible says, and he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Of them. These men were together. Now, listen, I don't want to disrespect either of these men. Peter was a great man, incredibly used of God. John was a great man, incredibly used of God. And I want you to know, you would be hard-pressed to find two people who were more different than Peter and John. Occasionally, I'll read a book on leadership or management or something like that, and you get the idea that it boils down to a certain type of a personality that you're born with, and I'm glad to tell you that as I study the Word of God, what I've learned about God is He can use anybody, and Peter and John could not have been more different than they were. Peter was type A, super driven, extrovert. Peter was the first man in. He was a hard charger, and he always had something to say. In fact, on one occasion, Jesus took Peter to a place we call the Mount of Transfiguration, and God literally had to 
to say, Peter, would you be quiet for a minute? I have something to say. Peter was a guy, he was always out there, always saying things. And then there was John. He certainly was less extroverted than Peter was. A bit more reserved. A bit more thoughtful. And he had more of what we might call a softer side. In John chapter 13, John writes there and he said this. He said, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. John there was writing about himself. He, he didn't write, and I was there with Jesus, leaning on his bosom, the Bible says. That was their custom. He said, there was this guy that Jesus really loved there. And John was speaking of himself. John had a, had a great love for Jesus and he was overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. And here's the point I want you to take away from this thought. You know, we're only left to wonder had Peter been alone as he walked to the temple that day, if he would have slowed down enough and been others-minded enough to even see the man with the needs. Had John gone to the temple that day alone, we have to wonder if he would have been assertive enough, bold enough to enter into someone else's life, if he would, if he would have had the courage to speak up as, as Peter did. Now, obviously, I'm supposing a little bit, but I think we can see that these two men brought the best out of each other in this situation. Peter was with John, and John was with Peter. And I want to ask you today, who are you with? Who are you with? Who in your life is there that's helping you to follow the example we find in Jesus? You see, that's a big part of what it means to uh, be a part of a church family. I'm not talking about attending a church. I'm thankful for anybody that attends Coastline. I think that, that would be obvious. It would go without saying. But I want you to know church attenders aren't going to make a difference in this world. They're not going to get the message of the gospel uh, around the world with missionaries. I'm grateful for those that attend church. But if those that are going to make an impact are those who are truly a part of a church family are with others this is why we talk so much about getting together in small group settings and and becoming a part of a church family now listen obviously i'm not implying that we have to walk around in pairs all the time but it might be interesting for you to know that that's how jesus sent his followers out he said you know be good if you guys go out in pairs go out in pairs be there for one another Friends, listen, it's so helpful when we surround ourselves with people who can encourage us and bless us so that we can encourage others and bless others. The writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 10, 24. He said, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Let me tell you what I need in my life. You. God told me that. He said, Steve, you need people in your life who can provoke you. By the way, that's a pretty strong word. Who can provoke me to love and to good works. Why? Because it would be so easy for me to rapidly be removed from that. And guess what? You need people in your life. Sometimes people like me that can, that can say, listen, we need to be loving. We need to be working for the Lord. Not to gain His approval, but because of His approval, His unconditional approval. John was with Peter. Peter was with John. I asked, who are you with? Or who's with you? But let, let me ask it this way today. Who is it that is currently in your life that is discouraging you when it comes to serving the Lord? You see, sometimes the way to get some addition in our lives, it comes by way of subtraction. Now, somebody could say, well, Pastor, wait, you're teaching on compassion. You're telling me to cut someone out of my life that's just kind of like dead weight. I'm not even saying that in an uncompassionate way. If you see someone drowning in quicksand, you don't help them by jumping in the quicksand with them. You've got to have a foundation of strength. There's a big difference between being besties with someone and ministry. And we're to minister to everyone and love everyone. But sometimes the, the reason we're not gaining the traction we need in life is because 
We don't have a John or a Peter in our life. We, we, we're just kind of going through life when, and we're letting other people set the course when, when God says, no, you need some people that are going to help you. They're going to provoke you to love and to good works. Peter and John were together in this. Here's the second principle I'll share with you today. Compassionate people give more than they have. Compassionate people give more than they have. Now, I have joked that I can prove Peter and John were Baptists. They were broke. Most Baptists, I know, seems like they're broke, you know, but Baptist churches are famous for giving money to missionaries and founding orphanages and hospitals all around the world. And, and uh, so this guy asked Peter and John, can I have some money? And he said this, silver and gold have I none. That, that's another way of saying uh, I'm broke. I've got nothing, not a zilch. No, I don't have a little. He said, I have none. He didn't say, I'm, I'm down to my last. He said, I've got nothing, okay? I have nothing at all. But they could give more than they had in a material sense. You know what I've noticed about those that have Jesus? As you share Jesus with others, you don't lose him for yourself. Jesus is kind of like that. You could, you could share him all the time, and you're never diminished in what you have of him. And, and we know that this man that they ministered to, they had to receive the gift by faith. But this miracle came about by way of the power of the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I wanted to point this out because oftentimes we see a need, we sense the weight of it, and we fail to act because of what we don't have. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know if I rushed in there, if I can make any difference at all. I hear, I, I've heard people say this before. I don't know that my little offering would amount to anything at all. And so we, we don't do what it is that we could do. Friends, listen, none of us can do everything, but all of us can do something. And you're not responsible. You, you won't have to give an account in your life uh, f- for everything. But we'd better know that God's given all of us gifts and talents and abilities, and they're to be used for the Lord. There is something that all of us can do and God can take what we do and give and share and he can extrapolate that and use it in a way that's beyond even our imagination now from a human standpoint we could take a look at Peter here and we could actually say well Peter didn't really give anything but that would be the wrong conclusion you see Peter gave some things that sometimes are far more valuable than finances more more important than silver or gold Peter gave his time We all have time. We can give our time. Peter gave his attention. I mean, the Bible really was emphatic. He fastened his eyes on this guy. Gave him his attention. If we were to continue reading this passage, this guy who was healed, he's leaping and jumping, and everyone's like, hey, I thought that was a guy who for 40 years never could walk. And then they start asking, how did this happen, and who did that? And before long, Peter gets arrested for doing this. There was a price that Peter paid to live a life of compassion. There's no doubt about it. But Peter just said, I'll do all I can do, and I'll trust God to take it and do even more than I can do. Compassionate people give more than they have. I moved a little bit growing up, but I spent most of my growing up years in Long Beach, uh, just north of here. And uh, my home church was located on 10th Street and Pine in Long Beach. And if you know anything about Long Beach, it's kind of the rough part of town. And there's a lot of homeless people down there. And and uh, when I got to my college years, I had a friend by the name of Rob, and, and there was another man in the church who was a retired pastor, and uh, his name was Pastor Frank, and, and uh, really Rob and Frank, Pastor Frank got together and decided they wanted to start a ministry for the homeless people in Oceanside, and uh, Rob brought me into it, and I'm so glad he did. It was a great, a great experience for me, and uh, so our plan was this. We'd get together on Sunday mornings at 5 a.m., 
and we go to the local grocery stores and get day-old bread and day-old donuts and pastries and things. And, and uh, then we'd go to our church and we'd make the strongest coffee known to man. I mean, it could remove pain. It was kind of coffee. Sailors winced when they drank this coffee, okay? It was strong coffee. And uh, we, we'd have a service for the homeless at 7. Now, before any of you were like, oh, great, they're not welcome in your regular service. No, uh, you're missing it. They did not want to come to the regular service. Sometimes people who are homeless have withdrawn from society as we know it because they don't want to be a part of it. And so we had a 7 a.m. service for homeless people. Man, they came out like crazy. You know, it's like, you know, we think of a parking lot before church service and cars and all this. And it was like, uh, you know, uh, grocery carts and bicycles with these fabricated trailers and dogs tied up. And, and they'd come in. And, and the deal was this. You're going to get uh, donuts and pastries, and you're going to get incredibly strong coffee, but you're going to listen to us do our very best to preach the Word of God to you first. And, and that's what we do. And Rob and I, we'd take turns, and, and we'd preach, and they'd listen. And I know some of them were just there to get the donuts and to get a cup of coffee. And, and uh, yet, I do know that others had hearts that were softened, and, and I know people that were saved. Near the end of my time there, there was one man, and I, I knew a little bit of his story. I'd share a whole lot with you, but it's not the purpose of today, and I don't have the time for that. But this man came to know Jesus as his Savior. I moved on, and I didn't go back to my church for years and years. I went back there to be a special speaker at, a, at an event they had, and I went back. And here's this man. The last time I saw him, he was coming to a, a service for homeless people to get a donut, to get a cup of coffee. He hears the gospel of how Jesus loves everybody and his sins can be forgiven, and he accepts Jesus as his Savior. And, and when I come back to my home church, this man's now on the church staff. He's helping in the homeless ministry. He's a leader in an addictions recovery ministry that the church has. And, and he's a janitor in the church. And I'd love to say that I know of tons of success stories like that in that type of work. But I can tell you, here's one man who had an encounter with the truth of Jesus Christ. It did for him what no government program has yet ever been able to do. His life was totally changed. And I don't mean this in a braggadocious way. Uh, there was not much I could do, but I could get up in the morning and go get a day-old donut and a day-old Danish at five and make coffee that was stronger than any coffee that's been ever made before and I could do my best to share the love of God and that's not much that shouldn't be able to change someone's life but God has a way of taking what we do and he does more with it than we ever could imagine oh listen friends I'm telling you your life matters I recall the time Jesus was teaching to a large crowd and he told his disciples you know these guys are getting hungry why don't you go ahead and feed them Disciples look around like, do you got anything? I don't have anything. You have any money? I don't have any money, you know. And, and they're, they're thinking of what they can't do. Oh, it can't be done. Can't happen. And a boy stepped forward with a small lunch. In John 6, the Bible says this, that there's a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. I'm going to read on, but he had barley loaves. Barley was the food for poor people. That was what you fed your animals with. In other words, they were saying he doesn't even have good bread. I mean, let me tell you about his bread. It's barley, you know, the poor. It's the animal food, Jesus. Barley loaves. And, and he didn't even have two fish. As you read the Bible, it says they were small fish. And then they asked the question, but what, is, uh, but what are they among so many? If you know the rest of the story, you know what happened. That little boy just gave what he had. But in reality, he gave more than he had. Jesus got a hold of it. And if you, again, if you know the story, the Bible tells us Jesus blessed it. And then he broke it. And then he fed more than 5,000 people with it 
Oh, friends, listen, so many Christians and so many churches today aren't making any real legitimate impact in their community, in their region. And many times it's because we sit around to assess what it is we don't have and how much we don't have and who we don't have. And I'm saying you're pretty special. If your life has been yielded to God and you're indwelt with, with God the Spirit, you may be like Peter and say, I don't have any silver. I, I don't have any gold. But I'll tell you what I do have. I can, I can give you that. I can start there. I can, I can do the little that, that I can do and I can see how God can take it and use it in a great way friends god can use your life god can use your life compassion is essential compassion is enhanced by teamwork compassionate people give more than they have and then i want us to see finally today compassion meets the deeper needs compassion meets the deeper needs if you're still with me in this say amen all right this last point gets a little a little close to home, so I'm going to enjoy our friendship right now and see if we have one after this third point, okay? Compassion meets a deeper need. So here's this lame man, and I'm using that because that's a word in the Bible. Uh, lame man, can't walk, he's a beggar, and he's got one need on his mind, just one. I mean, his, his theme song for life is money, 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 money. I mean, this guy wants the money. What do you need? Money. Money. That's what I need. Money. It's what he wanted more than anything. I need money. I, I'm poor. You see, I'm a, I'm a beggar and I don't, I don't have any money and I need money so that I can get something to eat so that I can live at least one day longer than, than I am currently uh, having been alive. I, I need that money so that I can perpetuate this problem I'm living in. I have no expectation of ever overcoming it, of ever solving it, of ever growing beyond it. I just have this one grandiose hope of getting enough money together to perpetuate my life one more day at least. Money. Can I tell you today, money was not that man's need. It always aggravates me when politicians, and when I say this, you'll know why I would never make a good politician. It always aggravates me when politicians talk about a compassionate government. Governments cannot be compassionate. If they can script your money to give it to other people, you're the compassionate one. I mean, Judas did that. You remember the lady broke the ointment and G Judas, he got all upset and he said, hey, you should have sold that and given me the money. I would have given it to the poor. What do we read about Judas? He was stealing the money. Our government tried forever and a day to try and fix all these social problems. I'll tell you right now why they're failing. They don't understand the deeper needs. They hear the people say, money, 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 and they say, great, let's raise taxes on people and give all the money away. That'll solve all the problems. Have you noticed that hasn't solved all the problems? Can somebody say amen? amen. I'm not nervous at all right now, by the way. <laughs> In verse 2, we read of this man. The Bible says he was carried whom they laid daily at the gate. This man had some good friends who would carry him to a good place if he wanted to be a beggar. They took him to the temple. They thought what we might call today church-going folk. I mean, they'll, they'll give more than maybe those down at the tavern. And, and we've got just all kinds of studies to show that in our day and age, Christian people are by far the most generous people in all the world. If, if I were a beggar, it might be a good idea to be placed outside of a, of a place like the temple or, or maybe a church. And, and they would take him there on a daily basis. They weren't solving a problem. They were kicking the can down the road one more day. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. It was nice what they did, and I have no doubt they cared for their friend. I'm just saying that it wasn't changing a life. It wasn't making a difference in that way. 
Peter looked at this man who was asking for money, and he said, you don't need money. You need to get up and move. You, listen, you don't need spare change, buddy. You need life change. You don't need another handout. Let me introduce you to a Savior who can give you that hand up. Let me lead you into a life that will give you the liberty, the freedom, the capacity to go beyond where it is you think you are limited to today. This may come as a shock, but sometimes what we call compassion is cruelty if it perpetuates the troubles in a troubled life. I talked to an official in our city, and I said, you know, if I were homeless, I'd probably want to live in Oceanside just because it's got real nice weather. But I said, I've noticed we've got a lot more homelessness these days. And I couldn't really tell where he fell on the, on the, scheme, on the, on the issues, you know. And, and really, what I'm talking about right now is very biblical, and I'm so happy to be saying it. But if you're savvy at all, I'm really getting into kind of our society's way of dealing with problems like this and where I believe the Bible falls. But at any rate, I was talking to him, and and he said, well, we do a lot for homeless people in Oceanside, more than anyone else in the region. He said, in addition to the general relief check, we pay people many times for not working and so forth, uh, that they can go to this place for food in the morning, this place in the afternoon. We've got places where they can go to get clothes. And, and if they use drugs, we'll provide needles. And a lot of you probably heard about this in San Francisco. It's like, oh, you want to do drugs? We'll, we'll provide a room for you, no problem. You know. And it's like, we want to make it so easy. And, and honestly... I've dealt with enough homeless people to know we many times think how strange they don't want to get back into what we would call mainstream society. I've talked to a lot of them who think, why would I want to do that? I get everything I want to do facilitated for free. People give me stuff to live this kind of life. Now, I'm not advocating a failure to help those who have legitimate needs. And if you've been a part of our church for any length of time, we, we, do, we do a lot for others, people here in this area, orphanages uh, in, in Tijuana, other, other things. I'm not against helping people here. Don't hear me wrong. But my reason for wanting to give to meet people's felt needs, maybe those material needs, is to open a door of opportunity to introduce them to the one who can meet their deepest needs, Jesus Christ. To think that we can throw money at a problem and we're going to solve it makes it better Listen, only in Sacramento, Washington, would they come up with something that just completely asinine. There are deeper issues. We look at the fruit issues, but we fail to understand, no, there's a root issue at the depths. There's an issue. I wrote this down because I wanted to say it just right. Financing and enabling dereliction does not help anybody. It hurts people. I'm saying the modern-day welfare state may be the cruelest trick ever played on those with real needs. You know what people need? They need people like John and Peter who take the time to really look at somebody and see them for the human being that they are and fasten their eyes on them. Say, look, I can't give you everything you're asking for. I'm not a handout machine, but I've, I've got some things. More than that, I've got someone. His name's Jesus. And when he works on the root of your life, these fruits are going to change. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about this, but I'm talking to a church this morning, and I'm telling you that there ought to be a trait that identifies people of faith who gather together to worship Jesus Christ. And it should be compassion. 
I'm not trying to solve all of social's ills in this, in this one uh, message today, but I'm telling you, some of you could get someone in your mind right now. It might be your family member who's recovering from who knows what. It might be the neighbor who's hurting for who knows what reason. It might be that coworker, and they've withdrawn. You could sense something's wrong, and what they need is for you to put your eyes on them. Say, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? I'm telling you that we are surrounded by people that need people of faith to enter into their life and introduce them to Jesus. Oh, uh, listen, it may be that an act of kindness precedes that introduction to Jesus, but by all means, we need to get them to Jesus. Compassion meets the deeper need. I'll tell you what my life is. It's exactly what your life is. It's the composite. It's the mosaic of people who've shown compassion to me. I didn't say this in the early service. I saw my mom this week, and uh, when I first saw her, she's curled up on her, on her bed. She, my mom has Alzheimer's. I think all of you know that, but um, she didn't want to wake up, and I just thought, that's how I, I was growing up, but it was reversed. I was the one in bed, and she was saying, get up, wake up, I'm here, you know. And, um, and I was just reminded again, my mom, I mean, she's still so pretty, you know, and two master's degrees in multiple languages, and what an amazing life she's lived. And, and she was so compassionate towards me, read the Bible with me, prayed with me. You might say, well, I don't think you're much, Steve, and you might be right, but I'm telling you, whatever I am, it's because of a mom that invested in me. She gave me her time, she gave me her attention, she gave me what she had, and God took it and worked on me from there. I'm thinking of school teachers that helped me. Some of the most influential people in all my life were school teachers. Sometimes it was coaches who, who helped me see that maybe I could do more than I thought I could do before. Sometimes it's people just like you who come into my life in a moment when I needed a brother or a sister to speak truth into my life. You see, what my life is, it's the composite or the mosaic of those who've shown compassion to me. And that's what your life is as well. And when we receive compassion, there's a good thing to do with it. Share it with others. You see, if you're a Christian, if you think on it, you already know what to do because you've experienced the compassion of God. In Lamentations 3 and verse 22, the Bible says this, it's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. His compassion doesn't fail. If you're a believer, you know what it is to have a God who in His mercy withheld wrath that you deserved and I deserved. And in His grace and response, He gave us salvation that we never could earn or pay for. The Bible tells us of the mercies and compassions of God, they're new every day, they fail not. And friends, as we think of a passage like this today, there's really just two issues we, we need to think about. Number one, am I living a life that shows compassion to others? And I do pray that some of you will get the name of a very specific person. In general, that's great. God may bring someone across your path tomorrow and you think, boom, there he is. Didn't know who it was yesterday, but I know now. But it may be that you're thinking of that person in your life that needs you right now. You need to slow down enough to think about them. That's the first issue. Am I living a life of compassion? Here's the second one. Have I experienced the compassion of God? 
Now let me ask you a question to help you figure out if that's the category you're in today. Do you know for sure that you have a relationship with God that's going to last forever? Do you know if you were to die today that you'd spend forever in heaven with God, sins forgiven? And friends, the Bible says you can know that. I'd never ask you to take my word on something that important. The Bible's very clear on this. And this message today, I hope, will be the first in what will be a series of messages that can be used of God to kind of reorient our church so that we are more closely aligned with His will for our lives. Our Father, thank you.